Well, I just want to take a second and piggyback off of what Marty has just said about small groups. Um, one thing we've learned, if anything, during this kind of goofy COVID season is that there's a lot of alienation people are experiencing. You're feeling really removed from one another, from community, from, um, from their homes. It's been a very difficult season. And one of the um, ways through that has been through smaller groups of people who follow up on you. Um, there are seasons when you can't be in a bigger group and you can only connect through a smaller group. Um, and I, I want to encourage this as a, as a lifeline for some of you who are maybe feeling disconnected and a bit alienated, uh, that being part of a small group is a way to maintain those connections and to have some life being fed back into you. Um, so if you're on the fence, go ahead and jump over uh, and then uh, talk to Marty and Anne and find your way in. All right, we remain together in Epiphany season. Uh, it began with the Magi, uh, with the January 6th feast, uh, the Feast of the Magi coming. We celebrate that the light has come in the person of Christ. We celebrate that uh, the light has come to the Gentiles, and we are focusing on epiphanies, uh, people in the Scriptures for whom the light goes on. Ding! We get another epiphany this week, and this time the person for whom the light goes on is an Ethiopian. So we're going to read from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 8, verses 26 to 38. It'll be up on the screen. You can follow along. Here goes the story. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So Philip got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up. And joined this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment has taken away. Who will relate, to his, relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. All right. It's a great little story. It's a fun story. There's some fun things going on here. Let's talk about it for just a moment. Philip, the kind of like hero of the story, is one of seven deacons appointed in the book of Acts. And his job is to serve tables so that the apostles will be free to preach. Uh, Philip does a lot more than serve tables. He's very busy. He's busy listening to the Spirit, and the Spirit says, Philip, go on a walk. And while he's on the walk, he meets this Ethiopian eunuch, a very obvious foreigner. Now, the eunuch means that he is a um, <clears throat> disfigured court official. Uh, he has been rendered safe to work with uh, a court, and he's, uh, he's basically uh, traded wealth. He's traded the possibility of children for wealth and security in the present. So he's never going to have kids, but he's got a lot of money right now. 
And that's the deal that he made. He's reading out loud from the prophet Isaiah. Just to be clear, everyone in the ancient world read out loud. No one read quietly. If you read quietly, they thought you were a bit crazy. It was always something you did out loud. So it's totally normal he's reading out loud, and he's reading Hebrew Bible. So even though he's an Ethiopian eunuch, he's an acolyte of some kind. But it's important to note that eunuchs are not allowed in the temple because of their disfigurement. By the law, they're just restricted from being part of the community. Therefore, he's kind of an outsider. He's interested in the religion, but he can't be part of it. And Philip asks the key question, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch answers, I think, somewhat humorously, how can I, unless someone guides me? Philip preaches Jesus, the eunuch gets baptized, bada boom, bada bing. It's a great little story. A couple fun notes about it before we get to the big picture. In Homer, Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, he refers to Ethiopia as the ends of the earth. Ethiopia is called the ends of the earth in the ancient world. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you follow in Acts just before this, they've been in Judea, and then Philip is in Samaria preaching, and then the eunuch shows up, and now they're going to the ends of the earth. So this is in some ways a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus made in Acts 1.8. Second kind of subnote to make is that the eunuch who traded a future... Um, he traded his future of children for security in the present, will now go back to Ethiopia fruitful. He can't sire children, but he can sire believers. And God, it turns out, likes to throw our world and our expectations on their heads. Uh, And so there's a lovely inversion in this story. So let's come back to the big picture, to the epiphany picture. The Ethiopian has an epiphany. The light goes on when Philip explains the scriptures to him, and it's an epiphany that's both like and unlike the one the Magi have. So it's like the Magi one in these kind of similarities. Both the Magi and the Ethiopian eunuch are foreigners, they're outsiders. They're not central, they're on the fringe, and they get something special brought to them. Both uh, groups, Magi and Ethiopian, are in some ways legally removed from the community of faith, whether it's because they're adherents to a foreign religion or because of disfigurement. They're not allowed to be part of the people of God in the old law. And both have a radical encounter with Jesus and come to faith. So there's very similar, strong similarities between these epiphanies. But here's a key difference, ready? Where the Magi found Jesus through the natural world, the Ethiopian found him through Scripture. Where the Magi found Jesus through the natural world, the Ethiopian found Jesus through Scripture. The Magi studied their stars, the Ethiopian was reading the Old Testament, and both studies led them to the place where they could encounter Jesus as king. Now, last week I talked about how it's an article of our faith that the natural world testifies to God, and we explored some of the ways that that worked together. It's also an article of our faith that the Scriptures point to Christ, But while I think we all pretty notionally believe this is the case, and certainly Christians believe it, it's worth taking time to examine in greater detail what we mean. So let's talk about it this morning. So here's the big question. How do the Scriptures point to Christ? I've got four sub-points to kind of explain this this morning. So here we go. Number one, the Scriptures tell a story. Okay? Number one way that the Scriptures point us to Christ is by telling a story. So a lot of people, I find, have some really funny ideas about the Bible. They expect it to be a book of pronouncements, a steady stream of thou shalt nots. Uh, They approach it looking for something they sometimes call answers, whether the question they bring is, should I move houses? Or maybe something like, how should I feel ethically about cryptocurrency? They're looking for answers. Or more seriously, should I keep sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Or how am I to be saved? 
Whole range of questions get brought to the question as questions looking for answers. But the Bible is not an answer book in that sense. The Bible isn't Google, where you can type in your question and get a series of possible answers from its pages, a kind of handy supernatural input-output system of information. That's not how the Bible works. Now, let me be clear. I do believe the Bible provides answers to our questions. I wouldn't be standing here in front of you if I didn't think that was the case. But the answers they give us don't always match the kinds of questions that we want to bring. The critical difference is that the Bible tells a story. And this is actually a terribly important point to stress and clarify. The Bible is not a set of propositions, if A, then B, if B, then C, and so forth. Nor is it a list of explicit pronouncements, do this and this, not this or this. That's not the list of those things. Nor is it a list of scientific, nor does, excuse me, a scientific record of systematized and interpreted facts for your consumption. The Bible tells a story, and there are a number of really good reasons for why it is a story. I'm going to highlight just two of those reasons now. So first, story captures something that mere facts cannot. Story captures something that simple facts cannot capture for you. You know this intuitively, even if you've never really thought about it. So let me give you an example. I can list facts of all the previous addresses, not all, but some of the previous addresses Liesl and I have had. I can tell you that we lived at 11083 Street in Surrey. I can tell you that we lived at 23 Brewster Place in St. Andrews, Scotland, or 24 Hepburn Gardens in St. Andrews. I can tell you we lived in the Villages, Florida, Boulder, Colorado, and now First Street, North Vancouver, temporarily. Now, you can deduce lots of information from these facts, you, but... Um, excuse me, but until you hear the story, we moved from Canada to Scotland so that I could go study, and then God called us back to Canada. Those facts aren't going to make a lot of sense. The story of why we moved is a radically different kind of information than the facts of our move. Do you see the difference? This points to a deeper distinction between kinds of knowledge. So there's a Cambridge mathematical physicist and Anglican priest named John Polkinghorne, and he describes the difference between these kinds of knowledge quite elegantly. Here's what he says. Why is the kettle boiling? Answer number one. The kettle is boiling because the burning gas heats the water. True. Answer number two. The kettle is boiling because I want to make a cup of tea, and would you like to have a cup with me? True. He goes on. There is no conflict between these two answers. They are, in fact, complementary. In an exactly similar way, I don't have to choose between science and religion. The universe sprang into being about 15 billion years ago through the fiery explosion of the Big Bang. That's true. But it does not preclude my also saying the universe came into being and remains in being because of the word of a creator whose mind and purpose are behind all of the scientific truths that we perceive. Okay? Sir John Polkinghorne. So God in his wisdom speaks both through the natural world and then explicitly through scripture. And if you're interested in chasing up how this is described in theology, we're talking about a difference between what's called general revelation and special revelation. But he chose story for his special revelation because it was a vehicle that could communicate things that mere facts could not. And this leads to the second thing we can say about why story is important. Because God wants us to know him, not merely to have information about him. Okay? Story is important because God wants us to know him and not merely to have information about him. I can know all sorts of facts about God. I can know that he is, we've got the omnis. I can know he's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. I can have all those omnis in my head. I can know that he created the world and came down to join it in the person of Jesus Christ. I can know that he loves holiness and hates sin, those things that corrupt his good creation. 
But knowing facts about God isn't the same thing as knowing God. In the same, thing as, in the same way that knowing facts about where Liesl and I have had addresses isn't the same thing as knowing us. And if you want to know a person, it's going to require narrative, a story. A story is the medium of the Bible because story is the medium that best reveals character. Story is going to tell you who someone is in a way that facts are never going to be able to do. Now, this is for me as the first and foundational point for how scriptures lead us to Christ. They tell a story. They don't just give us facts. They give us something else. They give us character and narrative. But within this story, there's actually some further clarification. So here's point number two this morning. This story, this morning, excuse me. The scriptures tell a godly or otherworldly story. They don't just tell a story. They tell a story that's both godly and otherworldly. Now, one of the kind of unquestioned assumptions of the modern world is that this world is everything that is. Everything there is is this world. There's nothing else. Carl Sagan says in the opening line of his lovely book, Cosmos, and he says it in the opening scene of the um, show of the same name, so he does it in a funny voice. He says, the cosmos is all there is, or ever was, or ever will be. He's got this kind of evocative voice. It's a bit spooky, and there's you know, pictures of the universe going around. It's quite lovely. Now, the implications, though, are significant. If you are going to find meaning in this, it, it must come from this life. If you're going to find significance, it must come from your experience and nothing else. If you're going to find authority, it must come somehow from yourself. We are fundamentally creatures with no help or recourse to resources beyond ourselves. And this is called an imminent universe. And honestly, I think it's a very lonely and isolating place. If we're all that is, and there's nothing else out there, and there's nothing beyond, then that's pretty um, isolating for me. Now, in the midst of an assumption like this, a kind of prevailing assumption, we in the church claim that our scriptures tether us to transcendence, that from within our Bible, we're connected to someone from beyond the world, a voice from beyond our experience. The story recorded in our book is the story of how God, from outside our curtailed and limited human experience and perceptions, revealed himself to us, made himself known through his people. And after making himself known, he chose to become part of his own creation, in the process bridging the inconceivable gap between temporality and eternity, so that we could know him fully. That God, who was beyond the universe, became part of it so that we could know him. And so the scriptures connect us to God by connecting us to the story he has chosen to tell in our space and time. In that respect, our Bible is a portal into transcendence, into otherworldliness, but it's not a direct portal, and I should be clear. It's not like we um, open the book and suddenly we're reading an unknown language, an unknowable language. You know, they get those pictures of light, like shining in our faces, and we're seeing something from beyond the world. That's not how the book communicates to us. It doesn't do it directly. In fact, it does things quite indirectly. And that's why we meet instead the testimonies of people who have encountered this otherworldly God and were transformed by the experience. Story is mediated for us through testimony. And so rather than receive a direct revelation, we are invited to look alongside others. We are invited alongside the story rather than having it downloaded directly in our minds. This leads to a third thing I want to say, which is that the scriptures tell a consistent and true story. The scriptures lead us to Christ by telling a consistent and true stories. Now, there's a couple different ways we can use the word consistent, and I mean both of them, and the second way kind of ties into the truth as well. So in the first place, I mean this. When I say the scriptures are consistent, I mean they are consistent in their expression across time. So this book 
quite discernibly and noticeably, and despite the 1,500 more or more years range of authorship and the diversity of authors, appears to tell one story. And if you know anything about ancient literature, that's a pretty amazing record that it could do that. Books like Genesis, Isaiah, Job, Matthew, and 1 Timothy were written at very different times by very different people, but in a way that points with remarkable clarity to the goings-on of the same otherworldly entity. From each of their disparate perspectives, the authors each appear to be tracking the same ultimate reference point. They're all talking about the same thing, and I think that's consistency. I should pause and clarify something. It's a pretty common claim people make that the Bible is full of contradictions. This is something I hear people say. In my experience, people say this kind of all the time. Often, however, when I ask them to present me with one of these, one of these contradictions, they don't actually have anything in mind. They've just been told the Bible's full of contradictions and they've kept that and they don't have a contradiction to tell me about. On the rare occasion that someone actually has a concern about a difficulty in the text, I've never yet encountered a text where there isn't a good answer for their question. Never yet found one. And most often the answer is in the text. Like, I don't have to invent something external to say, oh, well, if you've read Josephus, you'll know this is the case. Or you've picked up this book and read this thing. Or if you, maybe you had a PhD in theology, you'd understand it, right? But your plebeian mind needs me to help. I don't, that's not what I mean. The answers are pretty much self-evident once we explain them. All right, so that's the first thing I mean by consistent. There's a consistency within the text. But there's another way we talk about consistency, and that's they're consistent with experience. In other words, although the story in the Bible comes from another world, both from the transcendent God and from ancient Israel, which is a long way from now, nevertheless, the story told in these pages looks sufficiently like my own story that I understand what's going on. Let me give you just a few brief points of contact. One, people are messed up. Seems, okay, my experience is that people are messed up. This book says people, thank you for agreeing. This book says people are messed up, right? Uh, we need help from outside ourselves. My resources are insufficient to fix the messed up of people. This is consistent with what's being told in this story here. And a third point of contact, if help we need looks like Jesus and what he did, then this is really good news. In every era and every culture, if this is the answer, wow, that's good stuff. Okay? It's consistent. Now, this second consistency overlaps um, with an idea of the truth. And we're going to talk more about the truth next week when we talk about other religions a little bit. For now, what I want to clarify is that the Christian story is not like the story of, say, the Greek gods who are often as not thinly veiled abstractions of human desires, things like love, lightning, the sea, or war. The Christian story documents not allegorical abstractions that are projections of our ideas of love or goodness or sacrifice and kindness. Instead, what it presents us with is eyewitness accounts of, well, eyewitnesses. Isaiah saw the Lord and then wrote about it. And Moses saw the Lord and then wrote about it. And the apostles saw the Lord and wrote about it. They're documenting their eyewitness experiences. Now, allow me to be even more explicit by offering a kind of counterexample to what we mean by the truth. The truth of our Christian scriptures is of a very different kind of than, say, the Book of Mormon. 
Now, in the Mormon story, if you didn't know, Jesus comes to Mesoamerica and preaches to the native tribes. It's an interesting story, but it's got some problems. One of the problems is the book describes things like cities and rivers that don't exist. It describes geographies that aren't present. Furthermore, its teachings don't easily align with, the, with what's written in the Hebrew and Greek Bibles that we've received. The book has a foundational problem, the Mormon book, with both consistency and the truth. It doesn't add up in the same way. Now, the point of the illustration is not to slag off Mormons this morning, but to highlight the fact that our scriptures are told with a remarkable attention to both consistency and truthfulness, and they hold up under examination. All right, fourth thing I want to say this morning about the scriptures and how they lead us to faith in Christ is that the scriptures tell a satisfying story. They tell a satisfying story. Now, this is admittedly on the surface a highly subjective criteria. I like it, is what it sounds like. I don't mean that. I mean there's something deeply satisfying, something answering in this story. Uh, let's point out something here. The author of Ecclesiastes says this. This is Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. And I think what the author's after here is pointing to the fact that we have a craving for eternity built within us, a hunger for something transcendent that's embedded in each and every one of us. And nothing from the earth can satisfy this eternal longing. Nothing temporal or temporary, that is. No wicked thing and no good thing. No money, relationship, drug, or meal. No experience, no emotion, no well-being. No vacation or therapeutic relationship. No book, film, or YouTube binge. No child, parent, or friendship can fill the longing in our hearts. It is only in a relationship with the God of the universe that this longing can be satisfied. And it's through the story he tells that we get to know him. And that's what I mean by the story of the scriptures being a satisfying story. It scratches the deepest itch of our souls. E. Stanley Jones is one of my favorite authors. He's an American missionary, and he's a friend to Gandhi. Uh, fascinating guy, interesting stuff. He wrote a lovely book titled The Christ of the Indian Road. And here's one of the things he writes there. He, and that's Paul, let Jesus commend himself to every man's conscience. For he knew that Jesus appeals to the soul as light appeals to the eye, as truth fits the conscience, as beauty speaks to the aesthetic nature. For Christ and the soul are made for one another, and when they are brought together, deep speaks to deep, and wounds answer wounds. It's the best of stories, because it's, one of the, it's the story that answers the unspoken cravings of our hearts. So let me summarize. The scriptures lead us to faith by being a story, and story gets us something that facts cannot, and story gets us to character when facts cannot. We have a story because in the story we get to know God. The story leads us to faith by being otherworldly. It's outside our limitations, a voice from beyond the world. It leads us to faith by being consistent within itself and true, both in its reporting and in our own experience. And lastly, the story of Scripture leads us to faith by being a satisfying story, a story that answers the unexpressed longings of our hearts. Now, I've got to make an important caveat at this point. And to do this, let's come back to the Ethiopian eunuch for a moment, because there's something really important about his story that I think that we should note. Earlier, I mentioned that sometimes people treat the Bible as a kind of universal answer book, this easy input-output device for the voice of God. And sometimes this kind of reductionism shows up in how we unload the book on newcomers. The answers are obvious. Just read your Bible, right? We just want to, for, we, we, you're a new believer, here's a Bible, read it, everything will become clear. 
And I think this is obviously false. Let's look closely again at what the Ethiopian. He knows the Bible, but he can't get to faith on his own. And the text is quite explicit. Here we go. This is Acts verses eight, chapter 8, 30 and 31. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How could I unless someone guides me? Now, he knows the Bible. He understands what's going on. He's been reading it. But unless someone explains it, he can't put the pieces together. He needs Philip to explain things to him. Now, there are doubtless people who, who through private reading of the Bible, can come to faith. But far more often, and with far more precedent, it takes someone to explain it. One of the greatest stories in the entire Bible follows Jesus' resurrection. It's in Luke's gospel. Two disciples walking along the road, uncertain of what's happened with their Lord. And Jesus appears and starts walking with them, but they don't know it's Jesus. They dish their concerns to Jesus. They talk about the story that's gone on. They outline the story of his death and the strange accounts of his being alive. And then Jesus responds. Here's Luke 24, 25 to 7. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is the Emmaus Road. And Hang on, if these disciples had been with Jesus for three years, hearing him teach all the time, and they still needed it explained to them by Jesus after the fact, is it reasonable to expect newcomers among us to understand it from one reading of the Bible? We need someone to explain it to us. And in fact, that's the church's job. That's why we're together. That's why we get in small groups to spend this time discussing. That's the church's job. It's the community's job. And in particular, it's my job. Now, I want to be clear about clarifying what my job, excuse me, I want to be explicit about my job. My job is not to explain away difficulties. And my job is not to dizzy you with my intellect and to awe you with my learning. My job is to equip you so that when you're out on the road by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, hearing someone read Scripture, you are able to lead them to faith in Christ. That's the goal. I want to point out there's a bit of irony. The apostles are sitting in Acts, and they're like, you know, it's not right for us to be serving tables. Let's find people suitable to do this for us. And so they pick the seven deacons. You know what happens in the book of Acts? The deacons preach a whole lot more than the apostles do. But they were chosen because they were able to teach, and they had that capacity. Um, so there's some lovely stuff. My job is to be an equipping explainer. I'm not to be the explanation. I'm to help you to be equipped to the explaining on your own. Okay. How do we respond to this story? What does it mean for us to respond? If the Christian story were a list of propositions, then our response would be to memorize facts, equations, and causal relations. The way into faith would be as impersonal as the information that had been presented to us. But this is not what we see. In fact, what we see throughout the Christian story in the Bible, all the New Testament, is a persistent invitation to participate. In other words, we enter the Christian story by joining in. You get to be part of the story. I just remind you of a couple places. The Israelites, having been brought out of slavery in Egypt, are invited once a year to eat a meal with their shoes on while dressed for travel. You get to do some reenactment, right? Uh, once a year, the Israelites, while remembering their wandering in the wilderness, are invited essentially to go camping for a week. I want you to live in tents. 
to remember that we once lived in the wilderness, join into the story. In other words, their entry into God's story was through participation, through meaningful symbols and reenactment. And behold, what happens with the Ethiopian eunuch when he hears the story explained to him? He wants to get baptized. And baptism in the very same way is not a simple washing. It is a statement of participation in God's story. And to be very explicit, the reason you are baptized and the reason they pass through water is twofold. One, the Israelites pass through the waters of judgment going through the Red Sea and come out on the other side. And Jesus passes through the death of the grave and comes out alive on the other side. And now in his image and in that image, we pass through waters and come out on the other side. You're joining the story in baptism. That's what it's about. It's a pretty cool symbol. Baptism is a participatory response that expresses our desire to be part of God's story. It's our way in. Now, my guess is some of you may have never have thought of baptism on these terms before. And maybe for the first time you glimpse what it means to why we dunk people. What we're doing is aligning them with the story of God's work in the world. And if maybe this is news to you, and if maybe you've never done it, I want to encourage you to speak with Pastor Dave and get your name on a list and we're going to get you ready and get you wet in church one Sunday, all right? It'll be fun, because it should be fun. You're ready for it. Good. We're going to get you. Talk to Dave. Get your name on the list. Now, as we close today, we have one further reenactment that we get to do. And the story goes like this. When the Israelites were brought out of slavery, they ate a meal the night before they left. And the meal they ate was a lamb, and the blood of the lamb they put on the door frames of their houses. Now, the blood of the lamb marked the house as safe from the judgment of God, and the ritual eating of the meal marked the beginning of Israelite nationhood. They went from being tribes to becoming a nation. And so Jesus has become that lamb for us. His blood covers us and preserves us from judgment. And when we partake of the bread and the cup that symbolizes body and blood, we also are made into a new nation, the church, God's people on earth. We are his ambassadors and agents in the world. So I'm going to read from you, uh, for you the passage from 1 Corinthians. If you've got your cups, you can hold on to them, and then we will open and partake of them um, together. Now Paul says this, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us, and then we'll partake together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that um, you didn't just download information into our minds, but that you introduced us to a story, a very good story, a story about our life and about who you are and about what you mean to do for us. And I thank you that in this, um, in this meal, in what this symbolizes and means for us, you reiterate that you have saved us from judgment and that in the bread and in the cup, you are binding us together as one people. I pray you, Lord Jesus, to sanctify um, each our individual breads and each our individual cups and make them one bread and one cup by your spirit, that we may be your people, saved and blessed by you. These things I pray, amen. So you may take your bread 
me eat it, remembering that Christ has given his life for you. And when you've eaten the bread, you can drink as well, remembering that he's poured out his blood for you.